How many of you have that uh, favorite book or movie that has that twist at the end? Now, I would give you some of my own, but because it's a bad idea to quote from movies, as you know I do anyway, uh, I'm going to hold back from giving you my recommendations of those best twisters, right? The ones where the criminal at the end is the one you never, ever thought it would be. The one where the good guy suddenly does something that you never thought he would do. And these movies, these books, they suck us in and we focus and we hear nothing else as we're brought into that world. And perhaps the greatest story in the Bible, in my opinion, that does this very thing is a story from the book of 2 Samuel. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But David has done something he shouldn't. He's committed adultery with a woman who's married to another man. He's killed that man. He's both a murderer and an adulterer, and he is almost content in his sin. And the prophet of the Lord, Nathan, comes to him, and this is what he says to him. He tells him a story. He tells him one of those twisters of stories. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Now, are you not brought to tears with that? And it was like a daughter to him. Aw. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was uh, unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. David was focused. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now you hear those words and you think, oh, David, get out the shovel. You're digging your own grave because we are back from the story and we know what's going on. And many of you know the story. What does Nathan say to him? You are that man. He gets sucked into the story and he doesn't realize that the whole time the story is being built up so that he can feel the sting of divine judgment. As any good storyteller would, Nathan draws him in and says to him, you are the man, you are the one that did this thing, you are the one that deserves death. Why was this so effective? Well, I believe that Nathan was given divine understanding of humanity. How many of us, when confronted directly, take to it well? Notice there are no immediate hands going up. We become defensive, we fight back. And so Nathan knew that if he brought it to him in this way, he would be more apt to receive it. And what we'll see today in Isaiah 5 is the very same tactic. Isaiah will come to the rulers of Judah and he will bring them in before he lowers that divine boom. So turn there with me if you haven't already to Isaiah 5. And let's take a look at how he does this. We can imagine Isaiah standing before the rulers of Judah in Jerusalem And we can hear him joyfully saying, let me sing for you a song. Look at what he says. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Now pause for a second. In our culture, this is a little bit weird. He's singing for his beloved. He has a vineyard. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Okay. Isaiah is using a word here. Beloved was also a term for an uncle that you loved quite dearly as if you were your own father. 
So this person, this man, this, this being that he loves so much, as they're brought in, they, they start to imagine, oh, he must be talking about his uncle here. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, in our culture, we don't know quite what to do with this. I've, I've uh, even been tempted myself to take this and turn it into a ton, ton of symbolism, and many pastors do, and they do it quite effectively, but I think we're missing the point if we do that. Let me give you a more current-day version of this, and maybe you'll see what this means. Let me sing for you a love song, a love song for our beloved Oregon Ducks. The ducks had it all. A wealthy donor, perfect jerseys, and snazzy helmets. A perfect field was prepared for them in the midst of a perfect stadium. A successful coach was hired. He'd been there before. The best of the best were recruited. Many of you, because I'm not a duck fan, looked to them to yield a national championship. But they yielded a three-and-seven season. Make a little more sense? God had given them everything, everything they needed to succeed, the men of Judah. And yet, even with that, they blew it. And the point of this short song is merely to say, could God have done anything more? Because as we go through, he's going to start to unveil who he's actually talking about. They're brought in. They think about it, because any man in that day, if he had spent the hard toil, we've got two vintners in here, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. The hard toil of growing up these plants, and you go to harvest them, and they don't turn out the way you want. What do you do with it? And so the men of Judah, they would have known, oh, our hearts are broken for this vine dresser. And he continues on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. See, he's now stepping into a new role. No longer is he talking about the beloved. He's stating and speaking as if he is the beloved. And what he is saying to them, the thing that they need to grasp, is that he, the vine dresser, had done everything possible to create the environment for a perfect amount of fruit, full of fruit, vats overflowing with new wine. And when he went to that vine, to harvest it, what did he find? Look back at the end of verse 2, wild grapes. Now, the word in the Hebrew literally means stink berries, okay? Anybody ever opened up bad food? You're excited. You go into your fridge. You're like, oh, that was from only like two days ago. It was really from two months ago. You go, you pop it open, and oh, wow, it's a science experiment, right? <laughs> That's what he's talking about. He goes to harvest these grapes in one of two things. Either they are grapes, but they're wild, which means they're sour and cannot be used for winemaking. Or they're one of the multiple plants that seem to be grapes from a distance, but once you come up to them, they are literally poison and will kill you if you eat them. And so if you're writing down notes, you can write this down. God was looking for fruit, but he found only poison. God looked for fruit but found only poison. He continues on and he says, judge between me and my vineyard. He's speaking as the vine dresser who we will, we will find out is God himself. 
And in verse 4, he says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And the listeners would have been brought in to a point where they go, Yeah, that's terrible. Why? Because you see, what's interesting about wild grapes and domestic grapes is that the only difference between them is the preparation the vine dresser does. See, even a seed of domestic grape that can be used for, for wine can turn out to be wild if it's not prepared correctly, if it's not tended correctly. But these were. And so they cried out and said, why? What more could I have done? And the answer is nothing. The vine dresser could have done nothing more for the vineyard to yield the fruit that he was requesting. And he continues on. He says, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. Usually there was a hedge of thorny bushes around it to keep out animals. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. There was another wall outside of that hedge that was made of stone that kept out even the bigger animals. And he says, it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. What? Which vine dresser can command the clouds, they might have thought. Wait a minute. Isaiah's pulling a fast one on us. Isaiah is now stepping into the role of realizing, or, or making them realize, that he is speaking as God, speaking to his people, and he finishes with verse 7, the first part. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Oof. See, if all care is given and the grapes still turn out wild, the vine dresser has nothing more that they can do. All they can do is to destroy the field, rip it up, remove the seeds, and start anew, or leave it to the animals. And this is what God is stating he's going to do with these wild, sour grapes of Judah. He looked for grapes. He looked for fruit. And what he found was poison. This would have been inconceivable for a vintner or a vine dresser to do all that was possible and yet sour grapes rear their ugly head. But this is what mankind has done from the beginning, is it not? Think about Genesis 1. I want you guys to just go there in your mind for a second. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis 1, it starts out at the very beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. The words in the Hebrew can also be translated the sky and the land. It's basically God stating to his people, everything you see above, everything you see below, it's all because I created it. I am the creator God. And the whole statement of chapter 1 is the preparation of the land for what? For the building of a society that would glorify God. The ground is prepared to the point where it is given everything. There is provision for everything for mankind. And from that ground, it says that God created man. He provided everything. And there's a constant repetition that throughout chapter 1. They created, uh, he created it, and then he called it what? Good. God gave us all good. You ever thought about that for a second? That when the tree of the knowledge of good and evil pops up, they didn't need to know any more good. Why? Because God had already provided all things that are good. The only thing they were going to gain by taking of that fruit was the knowledge of evil, not the knowledge of good. And this is just like us, is it not? We know because we read the word that God is good and he is the only good, the best good we will have. And yet we all choose to learn about evil, don't we? Mankind has done this from the beginning. 
He says to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I've given you everything for fruitfulness. Fill the earth, subdue it in my name, he says. What does he mean by that? He means go out and share the fruit of my heart and who I am with the world. Similarly, God took Abraham from among the idolatrous, rebellious people of the earth that worshipped terrible pagan gods. He built them up into the people Israel, brought them out of slavery, walked them into the land, destroyed their enemies, brought them to a land of milk and honey. Now, many of us might think there were actual literal fountains of milk and honey. That's not what he's talking about. That would be cool. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about fruitfulness. I will take you to a land of fruitfulness, and what I expect from a vine that is in a land of fruitfulness is fruitfulness. He prepared everything. God had given them everything, and what did he find when he came to harvest? He found poison. God had given them all good, required fruitfulness as the natural response, and yet all he found was poison. What was the fruitfulness that he was looking for? Take a look at the end of verse 7 there. This is the fruitfulness he was looking for. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The next thing you can write down if you're taking down notes is this. God looked for good, but found only evil. God looked for good, but found only evil. When you read through the beginning of the Bible, the theme of good versus evil is so massive that God calls something good and we twist it for evil. And at the end of the book, Joseph says to his family, you meant it for evil, but God took it for good. There's this theme that runs throughout. And throughout that, at the core of that is the heart of God, that he wants his people, the ones that speak his heart to the world, to be good. What does it mean to be good? There is no goodness in us. But we can know what good is because we look at the character of God. Now, we miss this a little bit because in the Hebrew, it is so much more specific. We hear the word justice, bloodshed, righteousness, outcry. We go, okay. But let me say those same words to you in the Hebrew. Mishpat, mishpah. Sedekah, se'ekah. Justice, mishpat. Bloodshed, mishpah. Righteousness, sedekah. Outcry, se'ekah. What is he saying there? He's saying you might look like a grape of fruitfulness, but in reality when you're harvested, you're nothing but poison. You might look like one of my people, people of Judah, But yet when we dig down to who you truly are and we see whether your heart is good after the Lord or evil after the enemy, we will find that it truly is different. So many of us might be sitting in that place today. They looked like fruitful grapes, these men of Judah. But upon closer inspection, they were only wild grapes parading as fruitful grapes. God looked for good, but he found only evil. To those of you that have been following along with us, Uh, In Isaiah, and as we've introduced a number of things, this idea of righteousness and justice should ring out in your mind. And if it doesn't, I want you to write it down, circle it, highlight it, put a dog ear on your your paper, right? Put a paper clip there. Righteousness and justice. This is the core of who God is. What do I mean by this? Go back to Genesis 18, 19. And we've talked about this a, a couple of times in the introduction, but I'll cover it again. Genesis 18, 19. God is standing there, uh, and he's talking to his two angels. And uh, 
They're about to go into Sodom and Gomorrah to see what the heart of Sodom and Gomorrah is and if the outcry against them has been true. And Abraham is nearby. And in Genesis 18, 19, there is this verse that many of us pass on by not even realizing what it is. But this is the first statement of what the way of God is. You ever wondered when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? What is he talking about? What is the way of Christ? That's really what we're all here to find out today, isn't it? We come here to find out the way of the God that we serve. Well, let me show it to you. Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him, meaning Abraham, this is God speaking, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do we do that? By doing doing righteousness and justice. Sedekava mishpat. Righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And he goes on to say, because... The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave. I will go down, he says, to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. See, he says, I'm about to go perform righteousness and justice in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry of the oppressed that Sodom and Gomorrah oppresses, the outcry of the oppressed is so great to my ears that I'm going to bring righteousness and justice. I'm going to act in righteousness and justice. And so he thinks to himself, he says to himself, should I, tell, should I tell Abraham? Because Abraham is starting the family of my people that are to do what? Act in righteousness and justice. Okay. So this is the way of God. And notice that he also says here that he wants him to keep it. The word there in the Hebrew means to guard it. Shamar. It means to guard it with all that you are by performing Righteousness and justice. Why does he want us to do this? Because this is who God is. The outcry to God was we need righteousness and justice because Sodom and Gomorrah is oppressing us. And God heard it and he acted. Do you guys remember from last week what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was? And don't say anything to do with sexuality. Yes, that was part of their sin. Don't don't mishear me in that. Pride, what else? Let's go ahead and turn there to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. You guys got one of them. And as we read it, guys, I want you to understand why it's so easy for us to forget what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Ezekiel 16.49. Ezekiel 16.49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Why is that so easy for us to get or forget, Americans? Why is it so easy for us to forget what the sin of Sodom in the eyes of God was? We want to harp on sexuality. Yes, that was a sin. They were doing things outside of God's will. However, What does he point out? Being wealthy and not aiding the poor. Being prideful and not humbling ourselves. Having excess of food and prosperous ease and not assisting the oppressed. See, we hear that and we go, well, that's kind of who we are as Americans. So if I take that to the bank, then I have to be kind of offended at being an American. Yes. Yes, citizens of heaven. 
nation of the true Israel, you should be offended at the things that we worship in this country. Yes, you should. Take a look at Ezekiel 18. Verse 25. Ezekiel 18, verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just, he says? Is it not your ways that are not just when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice? What is the injustice he's talking about? Being prideful and excess of ease and doing nothing to help the oppressed. He shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, justiceness and righteousness, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. That's the gospel. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, and I would say the nation of America, the way of the Lord is not just. And he says, O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Did anybody catch that? Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Does the Bible say that God will put in us a new heart and a new spirit? Yes, it does. Does it say that we will make ourselves a new heart and a new spirit? Yes, it does. So which is it, Hans? It's both. You cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and His people. But you also have to take part in it. And he cries out to Israel as he would cry out to us, Why will you die? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Why do they not turn and live? Because on their own it is impossible. It's impossible to turn from our brokenness. God looks for good, but he finds only evil. You might say, but Sodom and Gomorrah, they were bad, right? What was it that Judah had done? And this is, I believe, where the plot line thickens. And for us, if you turn back to Isaiah 5, we start to see a reflection in the mirror of our own lives, of our own country, of our own selves individually. Just like David, when Nathan twists the story onto himself, I believe that Isaiah not only twists it onto the men of Judah, but I think we can gather and gain from this if we have soft hearts. If we're not already defensive, pushing back because of our nationalistic pride, we'll listen to this with soft hearts and hear what he has to say. He's going to give us six woes, each woe having an outcome of judgment. Six woes and three judgments. The first one, if you look at it, is in verse 8. And it's going to be this. You can write it down. Woe to the wealthy, your wealth will disappear. Woe to the wealthy, your wealth will disappear. And that is in verses 8 through 10. Woe to the wealthy, your wealth will disappear. Verses 8 through 10. He says this, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. Have you guys seen the housing developments 
in America? Why do they cram house to house with no room in between the houses? This hasn't always been the case. Why do developers do it? More money. Right. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Anybody ever uh, go around the neighborhood during the recession a few years ago? Houses empty. Giant, beautiful houses empty. He says, For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. In other words, what they meant to harvest, a massive amount, will actually be smaller than what they even planted. Now, in their day, in this language, what he's saying is this. He's saying the land barons of the day would take possessions of fields and houses and kick out the poor simply to increase their own kingdom. God's point here is don't minimize the value of others to increase your own kingdom. Good thing I don't do that. No, guys, what, what was this last election all about? Everybody votes according to their kingdom. Which person is going? It's def, we didn't, definitely didn't vote based on character of the candidates. What did we vote for? We voted for which one will protect my values, my kingdom. Not the Lord's. Many of us in Salem might say, good thing this is not me. I'm not rich. I'm struggling to keep my business going or I'm in debt. But you see, we've lost our minds because if you make even $15,000 a year, you are in the top 8% of wealth in the world. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the 0.08%, less than 1%. You're in the top 1%, one-tenth of 1% of wealth in the world. Or excuse me, that's $100,000. If you make $100,000, if you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 0.31% of wealth in the world. I guarantee you every person in here is wealthy and needs to read this passage. Is it a sin to be wealthy? Absolutely not. When we refuse to be generous because we want to protect our own kingdom, then it becomes sin. Paul said this to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set them on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is every one of us in here. But Hans, we're struggling. We eat ramen. Go with me to West Africa where they don't eat in days. They would die for your ramen. We are wealthy and we do not share because we protect our kingdoms. And it will go away. The next thing he says is in verse 11. This is verses 11 through 14. He says this. He says, Woe to the escapist. You won't escape death. Woe to the escapist. You will not escape death. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, musical instruments, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opens its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. 
Men and women who are so busy trying to numb themselves in Judah with substances and entertainment to avoid their pain. They're so busy escaping that they forget that worshiping God is their first, foremost, and only priority. See, if Isaiah were writing today, he would condemn the incessant social media, the hours on end of sitting in front of the television, binge-watching Netflix as it erodes our souls, the pornography, the romantic novels, the drinking, the legalization of any substance we can possess to help us escape the present reality, living for the weekend but feeling empty when the weekend is over. Anything, anything, so that we do not have to face the realities of God's righteousness and our own wickedness. Why is it that 35-year-old men sit and play video games for hours on end because they want to escape into a reality of their own? Woe to the escapist. Notice the statement of why the people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Knowledge of what? The law of God. The law of God that was right in front of their faces that they would not prioritize, they would not obey. God had stepped into mankind. He'd given us his very word. And we find each and every reason why we don't read it, why we don't follow it. There's always tomorrow, we say. I'll read it tomorrow. I only want to read something that makes me feel good, we say. Why read the woes of Isaiah? I'm saved. I don't need to be exhorted any longer. It's too hard to understand, we might say. So what's the use? All the while, we go into exile among the nations for the lack of the knowledge of God. And so verse 15 speaks to the conviction that you feel right now and I feel right now. Man is humbled. And each one of us is brought low. If you are not brought low right now, your heart is hard. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. And just when we think it could get no worse, God lifts our eyes to heaven and says through Isaiah, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. He reminds us, don't be condemned, only repent. Jesus, God himself, he will show himself just and righteous. Keep your eyes on him. But yet he continues. He continues with this one. The next one is this. Woe to the arrogant. Woe to the arrogant. He says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say to God, Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. You know what they're doing there? They're commanding God to act as they desire. They're looking for signs and wonders so that they can have God proven to them rather than walk in faith. Woe to the arrogant that command God to perform as they desire and want to sign in their time rather than remember what God has already done. Woe to the arrogant. Next, he says this in verse 20. Woe to the relativist. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, woe to those who call God's good evil and who call what God calls evil good. Every time we go rebelliously against something we know God calls us to do, for him or her that knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. 
This is just as pertinent for you as it is for me. When we know the truth of God, or we know that it exists, but we put it on a shelf in order to not pay attention to it, and we continue to go about our lives doing the things that we want to do, we are along with the relativist. Who was he writing this to, guys? He wasn't writing this to the pagans. The pagans will always call God's good evil and God's view of evil good. He was writing this to the believers. Believers, follow my law, he's saying. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to the self-sufficient who have it all figured out. I don't know about you, but I do not have it figured out. I need the men of God in this church. I need the women of God in this church to help me be wise. And I need the word of God to help me be wise. I worry about someone who says, I don't need to hear that again. I've heard that before. I've got this down. Woe to the self-sufficient. And lastly, he says, woe to the worldly warrior. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. It's a good thing that we don't lift up people as leaders in this country who go against the word of God, is it? Well, I didn't vote for him. Yeah, but you're going to vote for the other person. They were just as bad. We lift up people who are worldly warriors. They're heroes at the success of the world. They're wealthy because they earned it or they deprive the innocent of their right. See, because of all this, God will not sit still. He is not a God who watches injustice go by and oppression go by and does nothing about it. And so therefore, the result of all of these, he says, will be that God will destroy you. Look at this, verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Who was that? His people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. For Judah, the hand of judgment would come in the form of Assyria, and eventually, fully in the form of Babylon, who would come to remove Judah from its place and to take the people into captivity, putting hooks in their noses and dragging them off back to a land that was not theirs. Like dry grass, they would be burned up. The enemy would come quickly. Why? Because they had rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The word, God, uh, the word that God gave them 
was his effort to love us and show us what it is to follow after his heart, to be people of righteousness and justice, taking after his own mind and heart. Yet we, humanity, have refused to alter our lives to walk as the people of God. Our own kingdoms, our own fortunes, our own schedules are far too important for Christ to have the priority. Woe to them and woe to us that fall into the same trap. If God looks to mankind to view our righteousness, we are without hope. He looked for fruit but found only poison. He looked for good but found only evil. Left to ourselves, God will only find evil. Depressed? That's the point. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. In verse 3, they called out and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I find it no, no coincidence that in the midst of the realization for the people of Judah and ourselves of absolute and utter depression at our depravity, Isaiah opens up the curtains and shines the light of God into our minds in dramatic fashion. And thus begins six chapters of God sharing with us his unimaginable grace. And as we look at chapters 6 through 12 over the coming weeks, and especially I find it really cool that we're doing this on Advent, as we prepare our hearts for the birth, the celebration of the birth of the Messiah, we will see God's massive statement of hope in the midst of our brokenness. You see, it is not too late. Just as God called out through Ezekiel, turn and live, we individually, corporately, and as a nation can turn and live, but it requires a change of value systems and repentance to align with the heart of God. You see, when God looks to us, he finds only evil. But that's the problem. What should happen is us looking to him. Look to Jesus that you may bear much fruit. Look to Jesus that you may bear much fruit. Just like Isaiah, we must look to the Lord seated on his throne to find our salvation and our hope. If we look to ourselves and ourselves alone, we will not be able to create that heart, that mind of God. Turn with me to John 15, and this is the section that we will camp in until we're done. Remember that God had called the men of Judah the vine. He had looked to them to produce fruit, and they could not do it in and of themselves. And I'm going to be honest with you. I know a pastor should never do this, but I did not want to preach this this morning. In the midst of teach, uh, studying last night, I started to shed tears because I thought to myself, this is us. This is me. I don't want to take this to the people. Whoa. Whoa. And I said, whoa. But then I was reminded of this. Jesus, our Savior, our God, said to his people, forget about them. Understand the repentance, but here's the truth. I, he says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Notice that the vine dresser is still the same as Isaiah 5, but now the vine is totally different. 
Jesus is the true vine. He did what Israel could not do in his teaching and in his actions. He was the epitome, the highest point of righteousness and justice. He practiced what had escaped the men of Israel. He laid down his life for you and for me. And his sacrifice of righteousness and justice on the cross to reach out to the oppressed of spirit that were oppressed under sin and death, his heart was to free us. By his life, we are convicted that we are full of evil and poison and we confess that truth. And we repent from those things that we see similar in ourselves that we see in the men of Judah, that which was condemned. We repent not just from our actions, but also from the values that allow us to continue on in this way that is so similar to Sodom. And we accept that God is true and we trust in his truth. And by this, by doing those things, Christ forgives us and gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. He welcomes us into his community of faith and he gives us a new mission to be his people of righteousness and justice going throughout the world to share what his heart is. He continues on in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, and the word is similar to the pruning. So you can read it as, already you are somewhat pruned. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me, and I in you. You see, God still looks to us to bear fruit. Do not buy into this garbage of the world that says works have nothing to do with it. Oh no, works have everything to do with it. They show whether or not you have accepted his grace. We are only saved by grace. But fruit shows if we have fully accepted that grace. God's word, it already prunes us. It cuts away and removes by conviction those things which keep us from being fruitful, and we repent as we understand his ways, slowly pruning away all that is dead. Dear flock, let me help you understand something this morning. God never demands perfection from you. He does demand that when you are presented with conviction, you repent immediately. That's the life of a Christian. Notice verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Wow. Notice what he says here, guys. Verse 2. Go back there. Every branch that's in me. Oh, good thing I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was three. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was three. Every branch that is in me, a Christian, that does not bear fruit, what does he do with it? You are not saved by your label of being a Christian, nor are you saved by your label of being an American. You are saved because of Jesus and his grace, and by that grace, your life will produce fruit. And that fruit, he says, right at the end of verse 8, is what proves that you are his disciple. 
Hans, I'm scared that I, I don't have this salvation. What's your life look like? Hans, reassure me that I'm scared. I'm fearful I don't have a salvation. Is your life fruitful? If not, you should be scared. You should be fearful. You do not have his salvation because your life is not showing the proof that you're responding to his grace. But to those of you that are fearful and your life is for Christ, and every waking moment you think of his wonderful love and grace to you and you live a life, maybe it's not showy, but in every moment you are giving grace to those around you. Be sure that you have his salvation. You are a proven disciple of Jesus Christ. What happens when I fail, Hans? Repent. You're still his. He will not run from you, but he asks of you, be fruitful. Verse 9 As the Father has loved me, he says, so I have loved you. Abide, remain in my love. How do we do that? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How do we abide? How do we remain? We remain through obedience to the heart of God. And what is the commandment to which we are to be obedient? Well, he tells us in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let me make this really, really simple, guys. God's grace is what saves us. What is the proof that you've accepted his grace? Look to your left, look to your right. Do you love them? Well, Hans, I thought this was about all grace. It doesn't matter if I'm at church or plugged in with people or part of community or... Read it, guys. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is not an ambiguous love of Christians going around the world saying, I love, I love, I love, I love. No, this is an active love, loving the people to your left and your right, being part of a community making it a priority in your life. He goes on. He says, greater love has no one than this. How do I love the person to my left and my right? That someone lay down his life for his friends. And I would add to that, what does that mean? That means laying down your schedule. Gosh, I just don't have any time to get together with people from church. i got so many other priorities. Laying down your priorities. Yeah, just, you know, the people from church, they're, they're kind of weird. They always want to talk about Jesus. I'd rather go grab a beer and watch the game. Is that sinful? No. It is if it's a priority above the people of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What is the greatest love that sometimes can be given? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I love you so deeply that I am willing to give you the woes of Isaiah 5. And call us to repentance and to follow Jesus Christ. Not one of us in here is purely innocent in this, including myself. All of us need to be plugged into the vine. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, he says. If, if 
if you do what I command you. Okay, I want you to look really heavily in your Bibles here. Notice that I do not have a signature line underneath that verse. Not my words, his. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What did he command us to do? Love one another. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. For what point? To appoint you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And what is he pointing out that we ask of the Father? Help us to love one another. Help us to practice righteousness and justice. He's not pointing out how to build your own kingdom. He's saying, pray that you might love, pray that you might bring righteousness and justice. And he finishes with, these things I command you so that you may love one another. You see, the gospel truth of Scripture is that when he looked upon us, all he found was poison and evil. So we must instead look to him to give us his righteousness and justice, his heart of love. I am so very, very weary of convincing followers of Christ that they need to love one another. I'm so very weary of convincing you why you should stay at this church or love the people around you. I'm so very weary of watching people go up and down. I love the people of this church. I can't stand the people of this church. I need to find a new church. Love the people around you. Or go to a church where it's okay to not love the people around you. And then you should run for the hills because they're not teaching the gospel. Love the people of this church. If you are sitting here today convicted, join the club. If you are a person that here today and you have given your life for this church, and there are many of you, and you've given your life for the kingdom of God beyond these walls, my encouragement to you today is to continue abiding. The enemy, the cares of this world, the trials you go through, they will try to squelch the truth of God's hope and love. And when that happens, I would remind you of an old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But if you are sitting here today and you are convicted that the way you live life is more akin to the men of Judah than it is to Jesus, it's time to repent. Stop willfully fighting it, trying to figure out how you can outwit God. Repent and look to Jesus. Become a follower of his way of righteousness, justice, and love.